the the foods that are the most biggest insulters uh, into the human immune system based on research is what I call in the book the core four. Mm. So that's going to be grains. Specifically, I have a nuanced conversation in the book. I'm not making broad sweeping statements about these. these. There's some grains that people tolerate and there's some people, grains that don't. Right. We're all different. So I may do fine with rice, but somebody else may not do with rice. I may do may do fine I may be fine with corn somebody else may not be uh, so we talk about gluten we talk about the hybridization the glyphosate spraying all the sort of variables to consider is that the grain or is it the way that we're preparing the grain or the, the glyphosate spraying look it's there's a lot of variables to consider there but for the sake of simplicity today like grains then we talk about dairy, conventional mm-hmm. dairy, and then we talk about beta A1, beta A2 casein, which are the subtypes of casein, the dairy protein. Not all dairy is, is, is raised. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please, sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today I have a guest on that I've been wanting to talk to for a long time because... You know, those of you who know me know how passionate I am about the holistic approach um, to health and wellness and nutrition and functional medicine. And I have on here Dr. Will Cole, who is a leading functional medicine expert. He consults people all around the world and specializes in clinically investigating underlying factors of chronic disease and customizing health programs for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal dysfunctions, digestive disorders, and brain problems. Dr. Cole was named one of the top 50 functional medicine and integrative doctors in the nation and is a health expert and course instructor for the world's largest wellness brands such as Mind Body Green and Goop. Dr. Cole, thank you so much for hopping on. Hey man, thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to talk today. Yeah, so I think one of the things that's really fascinating about you is your this whole uh, full full on approach to holistic health, and you talk a lot about inflammation, and that's like your one of your mm-hmm. sticks, right? And I know that I've also heard you speak about a lot of it. It really begins in the mind and inflammation, and really helping your patients and people like kind of like let go of a lot of the things internally, so that externally, a lot of the digestive and, and issues and that sort of thing can kind of like help fizzle out. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, my day job, my focus, my passion is is functional medicine. So you can't really talk about autoimmune conditions, which is the majority of my patients. You can't talk about mental health issues like anxiety and depression. You can't talk about metabolic issues like uh, hormonal problems without talking about the underlying commonality between all of those issues Um, because those are the people I spend my time with and immersing myself in their case. And that commonality is chronic inflammation. Mm. It's the one sort of link within the scientific literature between all of those really far-reaching different on the surface health problems, different manifestations of chronic inflammation. So um, like the book, my second book, The Inflammation Spectrum, is just an extension of my experience with my patients. And that's really my patients come first and all this stuff 
is just me writing about what I've seen and, and my immersion in the research and kind of understanding how to abate that and mitigate those problems and to calm and calm inflammation and balance the immune system naturally. And that's what functional medicine is all about. But functional medicine is also about bioindividuality. We're all different. Um, so what I'm talking about when I'm talking about chronic inflammation, inflammation is not inherently bad. It's a product of our immune system. In balance, it's actually a really important thing. But when it's thrown out of balance, problems arise. And that's the chronic inflammation that's the problem. And this, this imbalance is impacting a lot of people. It's estimated that 50 million Americans have an autoimmune disease. I mean that mental health rates are of epidemic proportions and similar numbers. I mean it's estimated that 50% of the United States is insulin resistant, which is somewhere on this sort of blood sugar inflammation spectrum that I talk about, whether that's metabolic syndrome, uh, PCOS, uh, prediabetes, type 2 diabetes. Um, and yeah, so that that's what it is. And you mentioned the anxiety, like the mental health aspect of it. Um, it's something that I, I have been talking a lot about it as I've, I've been talking about the book over the past couple of months is that in the West, we'd like to separate mental health from physical health. Oh, it's like a mental health problem. But the reality is mental health is phys physical health. It's one and the same. I love mental that. health <laughs> is physical health. Our brain is part of our body. It is not some separate entity that's not subject to the immune system. It's not immune pr privileged. The science used to think the brain was immune privileged, but it's not. And there's a whole field of research looking at this, the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. It's looking at how inflammation is impacting how our brains work or how inflammation is impacting mental health. So the microglial cells, these sort of immune cells of the brain get turned on and they trigger sort of this inflammatory response in, in the brain. And you can quantify that. We can quantify that on labs and you can quantify that as you're improving somebody's health. You can see these numbers improving, these inflammatory markers improving and their symptoms are improving because those labs are reflection of why they feel the way that they do. But it's also important to know, like inflammation, I said the commonality, it's not the we have to then ask the question, what's driving the inflammation too? Right. Because yes, it's a commonality, but it doesn't, what's driving inflammation in one person is not necessarily driving inflammation in the other person. So inflammation is the commonality, but not the causation. It, it, it can cause other problems. It's a ripple effect because the body's so brilliantly inter interconnected. So inflammation in one area can beget inflammation in other areas, or what I call in the book, polyinflammation. But the reality is if you want to really go upstream, it's you can't end with inflammation. It's just the beginning of the story. Yeah, I think, gosh, you bring up so many good points. And I think the whole mental health and physical health connection is so true. And it's something everybody is missing because it's not just one is not separate from the other. They say, I mean, I've heard mental health and physical health go hand in hand. I know for me, if my gut is acting up, if, my, if I'm having digestive issues, if I'm just not eating right, if I'm not taking care of myself physically, mentally, I feel like crap. And I think it's probably mm -hmm. vice versa. If you're having mental issues and you're feeling depressed and you know, you're know you high stress and all these things, physically, it's going to show too. So what are you seeing that are some of the top, like, I mean, I know you said it's different for every person, but if there was a common theme of what are the causes of inflammation, like what would they be? So and th these are something that I break down in the book, but I 
what I'm gonna the things I'm gonna say it's it is bio individual. So I, I don't want to mean to say everybody has all these problems or over dramatize it, but these are things that I see the most often when I'm consulting patients. I'm running labs and we can quantify their pieces. So we the the question that I'm posing is what's driving your inflammation uh, and what works for your body. Um, so it starts with food. I mean, every food we eat either feeds inflammation or fights it. Mm. And there's no benign Switzerland meal. It's it's doing something to your biochemistry. Some in bigger ways, some in major ways, and some in negligible ways. So it, I'm not to say that that some some of these foods aren't you're going to be you know it's not going to impact you in, in significantly. You would notice that you'd just be able to quantify it on a lab maybe, but. The, the foods that are the most biggest insulters uh, into the human immune system based on research is what I call in the book the core four. Mm. So that's going to be grains. Specifically, I have a nuanced conversation in the book. I'm not making broad sweeping statements about these. these. There's some grains that people tolerate and there's some people, grains that don't. Right. We're all different. So I may do fine with rice, but somebody else may not do with rice. I may do may do fine may be fine with corn somebody else may not be uh so we talk about gluten we talk about the hybridization the glyphosate bring all the sort of variables to consider is that the grain or is it the way that we're preparing the grain or the the glyphosate spring look it's there's a lot of variables to consider there but for the sake of simplicity today like grains then we talk about dairy, conventional mm-hmm. dairy, and then we talk about beta A1, beta A2 casein, which are the subtypes of casein, the dairy protein. Not all dairy is is, is raised the same either, but dairy added sugar, and even the you know pretty sounding natural sounding euphemisms for sugar like agave nectar and or these sort of uh, evaporated cane juice like they may sound more natural but they're still sugar nonetheless. And especially the higher fructose ones can be tough on insulin levels of the liver, et cetera, and, and inflammation levels. So there's sugar. And then the fourth of the core four would be industrial seed oils, mm. high omega-6 pro-inflammatory, like a vegetable oil, canola oil, soybean oil, those type of things. So that is the core four in the book. And then there's a more advanced track for people that are higher on the inflammation spectrum that's what I call eliminate, which is the core four plus four more. And then we add that's we add in uh, nightshades, which are plant groups uh, like peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, goji berries, white potatoes, and nuts and seeds, legumes, and eggs. Uh, the eliminate, like the core four plus the four more that I just mentioned, those are all whole foods. They're not mm. inherently bad, but because of bioindividuality, because we're all created differently. I may do. I may be fine with like a hot sauce. Somebody else may not be. Some. I may be fine with eggs. Some be, people can get reactions from that. So I don't mean to say that all of those foods are bad for all people. Um, but the goal of the book and the goal of my work is to find out what your body loves and what your body hates. And there could be healthy foods that work great for one person and for the next person up. So I. That's really the food part of it. But then there's all these non-food inflamers too. And um, we talk about stress yes. and the impact that 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 can have because you could be eating super clean but serving your body a big slice of stress every day that's a saboteur to your your biochemistry uh, and that's like what you just mentioned like the this bi-directional relationship between our thoughts and emotions and our physiology mm-hmm. someone's stressed out they are gonna that's gonna spike inflammation and cause the body to pump out cortisol which is an immunosuppressant to help abate that inflammation and that creates other problems, a cascade of problems. So stress, we talk about toxicity. 
We talk about sleep or lack of sleep. Mm. We talk about social isolation. And we talk about like screen time, like technology, blue light, impact that social media addiction, that kind of stuff can have on somebody's inflammation levels too. Um, and then I would say if I could add another one, it would be like chronic infections, like thing underlying gut problems, which to understand inflammation, it's a product of the immune system again. 75% of the immune system is in the gut. So there's a lot of gut-centric components to inflammation. So we explore things like intestinal permeability or leaky gut syndrome, candida overgrowth, things like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which causes things like IBS. Other, It's associated with other autoimmune issues, acid reflux, GERD, um, and um, things like histamine intolerance and other underlying gut problems that can drive inflammation levels. So the gut-centric component, uh, uh, what's going on in the gastrointestinal system, the microbiome and the impact that has on inflammation, but then non-gut-specific like immune reactions too, things like mold and biotoxins, Epstein-Barr virus, uh, cytomegalovirus, human herpes-6 virus, like other reactive viral infections, uh, and Lyme and its co-infections like Borrelia burgdorferi. And Babesia, Bartonella, like these sort of co-infections to Lyme, tick-borne problems. So all those things I just mentioned, and then I could should add heavy metal toxicity too. All those things I just mentioned there are what I would say quantifiably, like measurable on labs, are what's driving most of inflammation in the United States. It's a lot of things, and but but you know, for one person it may be like a couple of those things. For the next person, maybe it's like two of those things. For the next person, maybe it's all those things. So my job is to say, okay, based off of a comprehensive health history, what labs are the most appropriate to, for us to get us the objective data to see what is upstream to your inflammation? Uh, so that that's the long-winded answer to, you know, yeah. to your question. Yeah, and I think you covered so much ground there, and I think you put it in a way that's easily digestible for people despite – you know, even though you, you gave so much information. And I know in your books and in your work – you know what I what I really is fascinating about to uh, about you to me is that you're more about like the whole healthcare approach, not sick care. And what I mean by that is I think traditional medicine now um, is more so like sick care. They just put a band aid on you. They give you a medication. They look at the they look at the the problem. They don't look at the symptoms. I mean, they look at the symptom. They don't look at the pro the root mm -hmm. problem itself, right? And you're like getting to the root. You're like, okay, like these are the causes of inflammation, social isolation, stress, you know, the foods you talked about, you know, screen time, all these things. And you put it in an individualistic approach that you're like, okay, like not one size fits all, but yet there's some commonalities that if you try and eliminate those four to eight things, whichever you choose, chances are your limit, your inflammation will get, will get better, right? So we're in mm -hmm. the middle of a quarantine right now. We're in a pandemic as I'm talking to you and stress levels are high, screen time's up. People are isolated more than ever. Um, they're probably mm -hmm. drinking more, and they're they're probably more inflamed than than normal. What are some things that like everybody could do if there was like three to five things maybe that you're telling your patients or that you if you were telling like a mm -hmm. like a good friend of yours could do to kind of like help you know reduce some of this inflammation during these times? I would say you know some people are. And what I'm about to say is applicable to pandemic or non-pandemic. So if someone's listening to this later on when the world's you know put to get back together, whenever that is, it's still all applicable. What I would say is I would say start with the present moment. I have a sign in the front of my functional medicine clinic. It's like a little you know, frame thing. It says if you're waiting for the right time, it's now. Mm. And the reality is if we're waiting for this perfect time, 
in the future to like get all our stuff together or then we're going to take care of ourselves. It's like that time's never going to come. There's never going to be a time where you have nothing going on and you have no stressors and you just have time to just eat clean and work out. And I mean, that's never going to happen. So that sort of constant deferment of your wellness is going to be a saboteur of your life. And I don't say that flippantly. I'm like, I'm, I've gone through stuff. I have seen my patients go through stuff in the midst of, of this, people losing their jobs, people have uncertainty, people have their kids at home. It's like crazy. But there's like two groups of people. There's people that are like looking at the silver lining and saying like, look, this is uncertain. I don't know, this is a lot of craziness, but I have nowhere to go. <laughs> so I'm going to start focusing on and control the things I can control right. and uh, and maybe have more time than I had before to do it. There's that group or the group that is completely triggered throughout all of this and aren't maybe making the most best use of their time. Um, and that's going to be applied even when the world's back to normal, whatever that looks like in the future, that's still going to be deferred and deferred and deferred because it's not the external situation. Nine times out of 10, it's not the external situation. It's headspace mm. and heart space and rene- renegotiating your relationship with yourself, renegotiating your relationship with the present moment, renegotiating your life and what you want out of it. So that's like that ultimately is the truth of it. And there are exceptions to what I just said, but for the vast majority of it, it is what it is. So, um, and you're, I, I and you're say, right, really, really quick. You're right. You know, it's like the pandemic's going to go away, but the habits you would choose to adapt during this pandemic aren't like if so, if you're like turning to drugs mm-hmm. and alcohol and increasing your screen time and, you know, spending a bunch of money, whatever it is, like when this is all said and done, you're still going to be in that, ha- those habit loops. So yeah, you make a really good point, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think like all of this, again, no matter what time that somebody is hearing this, this is not about shaming somebody or like you're not adding up enough you're such a loser and like why are you doing this this is about saying look this is about using self-care as a form of self-respect and Mm -hmm. saying how can i love my body enough to feed it good things how can i respect myself enough to do things that make me feel good and i know it's easier said than done but we need to start cultivating this paradigm shift of of worthiness that we can like the analogy that i use in the inflammation spectrum is if someone sees themselves as like a like an old beat up car how are they going to fuel themselves how are they going to take care of of themselves versus how if they saw themselves as a tesla people have an old beat up car they're probably not going to take care of it the way that the owner of the tesla does and many people see themselves as this beat up car when they're really born a tesla and if we realize the valuable creation that we are and the gifts that we do have in this life, um, I think that that grace and lightness and coming from that place uh, of, of worthiness will be the genesis of sustainable wellness. The problem is wellness is not met with that. And wellness is met with like this punitive thing where it's like, oh, I have to go on a diet or I have to go like work out and it's this miserable thing. Um, I'm not saying that you always want to work out or you always want to eat clean, but you need to show up out of self-respect. And that's that's where I'm coming from too. Yeah, I mean, I think like there's no better way to show yourself love than to take care of your body and know that like this is what we have. And you're right, like 
you know, we, we it's like we, we put so much emphasis and and talk into that person that we were. Maybe we have been beating our body up for the last twenty five years, but today we're not. So today we are that Tesla. Today we are that Maserati. Even though yesterday maybe we were treating ourselves like this beat up Toyota. And I think mm-hmm. it's an important conversation to have. And also the shame part that like, you know, you're not alone. Like most people are, yeah. are beating themselves up with the, what they put in their body and the way they treat themselves. So know that you're not alone and, and shaming somebody else for their journey isn't going to help anybody and know that if somebody is shaming mm-hmm. you, that, that that's on them, not on you. So like one of the things that I'm extremely passionate about, as I talked before we started recording is addiction is drug addiction. And it's a massive cause of a lot of adversity in this country is addiction to drugs. We've were, we're you mm-hmm. know, we're in this opiate epidemic and, um, you know, p- alcohol sales are up. And one of the things that I've been extremely vocal about is how nutrition can really change the dynamic of people in recovery once they get into it because of the, the whole stabilizing and mood, their sleep, their energy levels. Have you done any um, work with this? And if, if so, like what, what kind of things have you seen? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of, we're by no means like alcohol recovery addict, like um, experts in that space. But what we deal with is the physiological implications of it. So people that are out of balance, people that are inflamed, people that have hormonal imbalance, neurotransmitter problems, gut brain issues, if you look at the mental health connection of what's going on in the gut and people's mental health. So I mean that we in functional medicine see the, the drug addiction largely for most people uh, they're self-medicating because of some underlying dysfunction. So um, we deal with the physiological components that can be an aggravator, an amplifier, or a causation of the choices that they're making in their life. But we obviously work in conjunction with their uh, specialist uh, in that space. So they can get a comprehensive, thoughtful integrative another word for functional medicines integrative medicine mm. so it's really get an integrative approach we can deal with our wheelhouse we can deal with the underlying whatever that is underlying gut problem that's impacting the gut brain axis your gut and brain you know this but for people that don't your gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue so uh, they're inextricably linked through what's known as the gut brain axis so 95 percent of pe- people's serotonin their happy neurotransmitter that you know, SSRIs and the antidepressants work upon serotonin. Uh, well, 95% of that's made in your gut, stored in your gut. Your gut's referred to as your second brain in yep. the scientific literature. And if people think about it, their intestines even resemble the brain. So that's like the things that I, as a functional medicine practitioner, just take into consideration for somebody that has addictive uh, addiction in their life, whether that's food addiction and drug addiction or you know whatever else we're talking about. We want to deal with these underlying problems because I. Like the best analogy that I could have is when you deal with those physiological components, people can get their head above water Mm. and they can start thinking more rationally and less reactionary and they can start making more logical decisions that that paired with the proper rehab program and accountability in that space is a perfect uh, marriage of the support that these people need. Yeah, it's so true. And, and you're right. Like I have heard and obviously know that the gut is like the second brain. And like I was, we were saying earlier, like I can tell if my gut's off, like my mood, my stress levels, all that. I remember like years ago, I had no idea what was wrong with me. And I, you know, had all these gut issues. I was inflamed all the time. And, and I was also like very tired and lethargic. I thought it was like a, some of my, my adrenals. I thought it was, I was just overstressed. I didn't, I had no idea what it was. And I ended up 
um, hiring somebody who was like in the functional nutrition space. And we did all these labs and it came back that my gut was so out of balance and so inflamed. And once we like reworked that and got that under control, um, with proper supplementation, a better you know diet that was better suited for me, like things changed for me. And I think that's mm-hmm. so important for people to remember that, you know, people, like, I think a lot of people, they don't understand like how powerful nutrition can be, how powerful a functional approach can be. They see somebody in functional medicine and they get kind of scared because they're like, oh, is this person like really know what they're talking about? Is this another, this or that? Like, so like, I guess in layman's terms, like what's the difference between like a functional medicine doctor, somebody like you, or who takes an integrative approach and somebody who's like traditional, who would see like a hospital, like, you know, your primary mm-hmm. care doctor. Yeah, so the training in the standard model of care is amongst many other things, but just core fundamental management of chronic health problems Mm. is diagnose a disease and match it with a medication. That's largely and overwhelmingly the majority of how the system's set up. It's this you get this diagnosis code and you get medications for that diagnosis code. It's this sort of medicinal matching game. That's chronic healthcare in the West. Mm. Um, Obviously, acute care is different. So, that's emergency surgeries, life-saving stuff, all the amazing things. Um, But I'm differentiating, you know, chronic, the way that we manage chronic health problems, which is a lot of problems, mental health issues, autoimmune disease, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, all that stuff. So what a functional medicine approach is a few things. First thing, we interpret labs using a thinner reference range. So anybody that's listening will know, hey, when I got my labs done, there was my number and then there was this interval X to Y range that I was being compared to, that reference range. Well, that reference range is largely determined from a statistical bell curve average of people who go to labs. People that predominantly go to labs are people with health problems. Mm. So there's a lot of people that go to the doctor and they know, hey, this symptom isn't normal for me and they want to find out why. And then labs get ran, the basic labs get ran and the doctor says, everything's fine. You're, you're Nothing's you're just depressed. Here's an antidepressant. You're just anxious. Here's a Xanax. You're just getting older. You just need mm-hmm. to lose weight. All of right, right. these sort of well-intentioned reasons as to how somebody could be having symptoms despite quote unquote normal labs. But what they're unintentionally telling them is they're a lot like the other people with health problems that they're being compared to mm-hmm. in that reference range. So just because something's common doesn't make it normal and ubiquity doesn't equate with normalcy. And the reality is that the in functional medicine, we're taking people with health problems out of that reference range to what's left when we do that. It's optimal, vibrant wellness. That's the functional range where your body is functioning the best, the optimal range. So we are interpreting labs using a tighter range to get answers on the data points on labs. The second thing we do is we run more comprehensive labs, like the things I mentioned earlier. Mm. And then the third thing is we realize we're all different. There's not a cookie cutter thing. Like we keep saying this, this is bioindividuality. So you could have 100 people with fatigue. Let's just use that as an example. What's causing the fatigue in this one person is not causing the fatigue in the next person. Fatigue is just a diagnosis of how they're feeling, similar to like fibromyalgia or depression or anxiety or whatever you're talking about. Well, okay, I know I'm feeling this way, but why? Right. And really, it's a very few cases where somebody's sick from a medication deficiency. So we want to say, okay, like what, what's upstream that's driving this problem in the first place? We see all those symptoms, whether that's fatigue, anxiety, depression, weight gain, go on and list it on. All these symptoms, we see them as check engine lights on a car. Like the check engine light's on, but why? 
And that's where labs and comprehensive health history and then using real life as a lab and seeing what's working and what's not working for them to really fine tune the approach that's needed for that specific person and it's tailored to them. So that's the functional medicine approach. Now to your, to your point, like a lot of my colleagues in functional medicine are conventionally trained too. I mean, the Institute for Functional Medicine, that's who's trained myself, my team, and all the doctors at the Cleveland Clinic's Functional Medicine Center. But most of the doctors trained through IFM are conventionally trained. And I would venture to say most of the doctors at IFM still are holding Western practices too. They just realized they didn't learn any of this stuff in medical school, so they went to postdoctor education and training to get trained on this stuff. And then they're kind of have, you know, they're one foot in the conventional state, one foot in the functional state. And some of them aren't practicing functional medicine because the system's not set up for that. But they know it, but they just don't have the time. They're not getting compensated. Their schedules are booked. They don't have time to sit there and talk about the things that I get to talk about in a private practice in a concierge sort of functional medicine setting. Um, And then many of them have to leave the conventional setting because if they are passionate enough about it, that system's not set up for true healthcare, like you said. It's set up for disease management, mm. which has its place, but you're not going to ultimately get somebody healthy with that. And the statistics speak for themselves. Now, we are, as the United States, we spend more money on healthcare than the next 10 top spending countries combined. Yet, despite all that money, all that spending, we have the shortest lifespan and the most disease of all industrialized nations. It'd be one thing to be spending that amount of money and actually beating statistics and actually improving outcomes, but we're not. We are completely hemorrhaging money and and there's poor results and very little to show for it. So that's what I'm talking about when it comes to a functional medicine approach. And I think there's amazing mainstream conventional institutions like the Cleveland Clinic that are being game changers in this space and other ones are following suit. Um, you'll see more and more integrated medicine, functional medicine uh, departments within hospitals because the, t- the statistics speak for themselves. So that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, and I think it's really fascinating that you know we're very aligned in this because it's something that even as a trainer with my clients, you know, one of the things that was that I would even sell to people when they were trying to debating whether they wanted to invest in their health was like, well, you can either pay for it now or pay for it later. Because if you're really worried about money or finances, it's going to cost you a lot more to manage your diabetes, your heart conditions, your heart attacks, or whatever, if you wait until you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s to take care of yourself. Whereas now you take the shot, you you, you invest in yourself, and you know it's like we're so – we're so reactive as a society. We're not very proactive. And I think that's as as a whole, if you look at everything, one of my biggest things, even during this pandemic that I'm kind of, I wouldn't say, I mean, I'm very passionate, upset about is we're not looking at like the, um, like what, like what if this is going to do to people's mental health when they, when this is all said and done, we're not looking at how people can like invest in themselves while they're at home. We're not, like, you're not seeing a lot of that. It's more like, Oh, people are dying people. And I'm not saying that that's not important. I'm not t- talking about that at all. I'm just saying if you look at we're not being proactive, we're not being solution-oriented, and what your approach to this, pandemic or not, is spot on. So, like, you know, we're in a stressed-out society. Like, we're overstressed. We're overstimulated. You know, people are on their phones more than ever. We're sleeping less. We're eating more. You know, and I know, like, you're very individualized in your approach, but I know there's going to be a lot of people listening to this and being like, well, all right, I got this. We got this great, amazing uh, guest who's extremely smart on functional medicine and stress management inflammation 
like what would he tell me if i asked him like how to to lower my stress levels like what would you say uh it manage inflammation levels uh, so i and stress let's let's talk but it's really one and the same so i would say few like low-hanging fruits like just things that most people overwhelming majority of people will benefit from if they do more of right uh first thing is start reducing those those core four that i mentioned like grains added sugar industrial seed oils canola vegetable oil soybean oil things like that and uh dairy, conventional dairy so decrease the amount of those increase the amount of healthy fats you're having so that's in keto terry in my first book it's about mm. mostly plant-based clean keto approach which is a great approach for lowering inflammation and that's actually the term the inflammation spectrum i first talked about that term in keto because beta hydroxybutyrate the ketone that your body your body produces in nutritional ketosis is not just a way to burn fat and become fat adapted and get metabolic flexibility it's a way to it's a signaling molecule. Uh, it's an epigenetic modulator, meaning it calms inflammation levels. Mm. It lowers uh, neuroinflammation, low, low inflammation in the brain, it lowers systemic inflammation, it upregulates these pro-antioxidant, pro-longevity pathways in the body, increasing autophagy, et cetera. Um, so uh, things like olives, extra virgin olive oil, uh, avocados, uh, soaked nuts and seeds, like making them more digestible, like mm. nuts and seeds, um, coconut cream, coconut milk, coconut, things like that, uh, and pasture-raised eggs, wild-caught fish, even some grass-fed beef, like these healthy fats, and then lots of produce. I produce, I, I, I prefer produce to be uh, cooked to be more digestible on the system, soups and stews even if someone has some gut digestive problems. I mean, pureed vegetables could be done because a lot of people have these gut problems. They're not breaking down vegetables appropriately, and they're getting bloated from things like salad. So it's not the salad's fault so much as the underlying gut problems we have in this world. So soups and stews can be really nourishing, easy to digest already. Um, and then bring acts of stillness into your life. So whether that's mindfulness, whether that's another form of meditation, maybe it's just like getting out in nature, like what the research refers to as uh, like forest bathing, like the sort of Japanese and uh, South Korean like research on the mechanisms of that. Um, just acts of stillness in your life, whatever that looks like, whatever gets you to quiet the chatter in your mind and start to grow in conscious awareness to realize you aren't your thoughts and emotions. <laughs> they are not you. Mm. You are the observing presence of them. Um, and you can take your thoughts captive in that way. Uh, so those are things that um, anybody can start doing. And it's going to dramatically start to reduce inflammation, reduce stress levels, and start improving people's health. Yeah, and I think you know, you, you said some things that are just some real easy wins for people, right? You talked about some of the foods they can, they can eliminate because here's the thing. Like there's so many diets out there. There's so many things that just are floating around and that people just get so confused on what to do and how to do it. And you got this program and you got that program. And I think the way you just framed it are like, look, start here, start with these four foods, try to eliminate them and see what it does to your inflammation, right? If you really want to eat to feel better, start here, start adding in these things. Then start adding in – and it's like the more we can do that and st it just like kind of like, okay, now we're at like center. We've eliminated these four foods. Okay, now what can I add into my life that will decrease stress instead of like thinking of everything as being taken away? Getting out – adding in, getting out in nature, adding in like a 20-minute workout, adding in 
you know, a 15 minute meditation, calling a loved one every single day, gratitude, whatever it is that now we're like, now we're talking and now we're building habits. Now we're building long-term and this, this whole thing of self-love is being cultivated into something greater, which I think people need to do because like you said, it, mm-hmm. it comes down to how we are responding with the situation. We can't control the external things that happen outside of us. We can control what we do within ourselves. And I think the tips you provided are amazing. What I wanted to ask you, though, is so you've got all this knowledge. Like I, I know you, you're obviously very world-renowned in the work you do now, and you also are very passionate about you know other parts of health, mindfulness, and that sort of thing. What like what led you here? Were you did you go to school? Like, were you in school and you were like, you know what? I want to be a doctor. I want to change the world. I want to do all these things. Or did it start from something different? Um, I was always interested in health, like way before I was formally trained in it. And I and so I, I grew up in a, a kind of a strange kid in some ways. I grew up in like rural Pennsylvania, definitely not like the epicenter of wellness right <laughs> even today it's not but like i was drinking the weird adaptogenic tonics in like the 90s and like 80s and as a little kid and like uh like i was just interested in eating healthy i'd like grab just like bell peppers and just eat bell peppers and like vegetables and fruits and healthy weird things like uh as a preteen and a teenager um and then that evolved into me wanting to uh, be formally trained in it. So I went to an integrative healthcare school uh, called Southern California University of Health Sciences. Um, so there's DCs, MDs, NDs, nurse practitioners, oriental medicine doctors, acupuncturists, all there learning their different modalities. Um, so it went from, okay, I wanted to be in healthcare in the natural complementary state to get to the root cause and i was just fascinated with that and using food as medicine and getting to the core root issues why people are going through what their problems are but it was more it was more uh targeted as functional medicine when i was in school because i heard of a guy who had gone to my school he was older than i was but he i heard of him because he'd gone to my school and his name was Datis karazian who still today is one of the leaders in functional medicine. He still speaks for the Institute for Functional Medicine that I spoke of. And that is really where it went from, okay, I want to be in healthcare to targeted as functional medicine. So I graduated school knowing I wanted to be in functional medicine. And then um, because I was writing about it and talking about this early on, you know, it just was a natural thing where telehealth was going to be part of my journey because there'd be other people in different states and countries that would be hearing about me talking about something on YouTube or on you know Instagram or um, it was wasn't really Instagram at that point I don't think but it was um, YouTube primarily and then uh, articles that I'd be writing um, and um, that's where it kind of evolved to the telehealth clinic and I haven't my day job like what I'm doing from 8 a.m to 6 p.m throughout the week is not changed in, in, in a in, in all this time so it's just and like I said like the books or the like the podcast or like anything else I do is just a natural extension of what I focus I'm focusing on with my patients yeah I um I think at the end of the day like what really is awesome about what you just shared is your passion for it and you grew up like you just mm-hmm. felt this knack. And that's why I knew this about you, but I wanted to save this until the end to kind of put a bow on everything and bring everything back to full circle is that I think like so many people, they wonder 
like why they do certain things. They wonder like why they want to get into a certain profession. And I think it all comes from passion. And I think a lot of adversity is podcast called the adversity advantage. A lot of adversity comes from, you're just not, I think we're not in alignment with a lot of the things we're doing. And what's really mm-hmm. awesome about what you've done is you've taken a passion, you've taken a purpose from a young age into health and you've grown it into something. Now it's just built and built and built to, to where you are now, man. And I really appreciate your time on the show. Um, I think if the audience, if you're listening to this, you're going to want to listen to this several times. I mean, I, because you know, the knowledge that was dropped on this podcast alone is, is worth, I mean, not only a, a lot of like money, but just time, like condensing a lot of the, the years and years that Dr. Cole was spent studying this stuff that he has put into a 40, 45 minute interview um, is amazing. So I wanted to thank you once again for coming on. Hey, man, I, anytime. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, you know, once again, you know, you can find more about Dr. Cole at drwillcole.com. Um, I'm going to put all his information about his books, the Ketotarium uh, book and uh, um, the Inflammation Spectrum in the in the show notes. And I will also put uh, the links to his Instagram. He's at Dr. Will Cole. And, um, you know, and, and the link to, to Amazon so you can book, you can get his books directly from there. But once again, thank you. And, uh, for those listening, please reach out to him. Please reach out to me. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love to hear from you. And, uh, once again, you're listening to this episode of the adversity advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we will see you next time.